We'll continue with our lessons in the book of Amos. Let's open our Bibles to Amos chapter 6. The 6th chapter. We said that our last division of hear this word included chapter 5 and 6. If you'll remember, and you can look back in your Bible with chapter 3, it says hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. And then chapter 4 verse 1, hear this word. Chapter 5 verse 1, hear you this word which includes chapter 5 and 6 in this message. So we've only gotten halfway through it, and we continue with what uh, Amos is saying about uh, his uh, message, hearing this word or message uh, that he is given to Israel. And we'll finish up with chapter 6. And then from chapter 7 through chapter 9, verse 10, the next section of our division of this book, we have five visions of witness. Five visions of witness, and we'll point them out to you when we get to the seventh chapter of just where they're located. But anyway, we'll take up with chapter 6, verse 1. And Amos says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named the chief of nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Now in this first verse, he pronounces a woe. He's actually saying woe to those that that felt self-secure, that felt that they were stronger than other nations, and they trusted in their own strength instead of the strength of God. By the way, when we come to the place that we're trusting in our own strength, we're in in a bad state of affairs. We need to realize that as far as we're concerned, we have no strength. And Israel needed to realize that. Their strength was in the Lord, and they, they came to the place that they could not understand that. And that's why the message of Amos comes to them. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. They were self-satisfied. They were indulgent in everything that they did. They were indifferent to others' needs. And they were careless. And they were negligent. Five things here. Self-satisfaction. You might want to get these. Indulgence. Indifference. Carelessness. And negligence. And these five things are a sad picture of anyone that wants to trust in themselves and their own security. Woe to them. You know, when you come across this word woe, that's a warning. That are at ease in Zion. They just sit back and trust in the mountain of Samaria. They thought they were strong, which are named the chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Notice that's an exclamation of what Amos is saying. They're self-presumptuous. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we'll find some different things about them. But verse 3 says, Pass ye to uh, Cana and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? He's calling upon Israel to look at the nations round about them and compare themselves. And these other nations and places that they, he's speaking of, he says in, a, in an ironic way, Are they better? Well, certainly they're not better than Judah and Israel, but it seems to uh, be that uh, Israel was trusting so much in their own uh, self-satisfaction and security that they were beginning to see the nations round about them in a different light. Verse 3 says, Ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near. They put far off the evil day. Procrastination. They didn't ever believe that anything bad would happen to them. You put far away the evil day. Put far away a day of judgment, a day of accounting. And he says, you put 
far away the evil day. They, they are evildoers themselves and sin lovers, and they put afar away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near. They were lovers of self, and they lived for self-indulgence. They were careless and light-hearted, worldly. They were not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, as we read on down. It says in verse 4, "...that lie upon the beds of ivory, and stretch themselves upon their couches, and eat of the lambs of the flock, and the calves out of the midst of the stall." They were just having their festivals, not just on a special occasion, but everyday feastings. Just living it up, we would call it in our modern day. Thinking that they have no care for anyone else but themselves. Kind of like the rich man, you know, said he had plenty stored up, and he would just take advantage of what he had and live it up. Well, some people live it up sooner than they think, too. And on the other hand, some people do not live to live it up because we're in God's hands. And a lot of folks that think they're going to have a real good time later on with the possessions that they have may never see that day. You know, I love that song we sing, A Day at a Time. And we might say that uh, we take everything an hour at a time, even not a day at a time. Remember, we had a text from the Psalms that says, Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. So we go through this life by steps, one step at a time. We don't take one giant step and it's all over. We just go by steps. And he says, Order my steps in thy word. God's word directs our steps, and should, every step that we take in every day of our lives. I'm thankful every day when God permits me to get out of bed and have a new day. And we should say, not just on the Lord's day, but every day, this is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because some, for some of us, it may be the only day we have. And one day it will be the only day we have. And one day it will be the last day that we'll have. So we need to be mindful of the fact that God is in control of our lives. And we need to trust Him every day. And not just have this attitude of living in luxury. Look, as they did. They lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves, this verse 4, upon their couches and eat the lambs of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. Verse 5, they chant to the sound of the vile and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. They were careless. They were worldly, lighthearted. That drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with chief ointments. And I want you to notice the last part of verse 6. In spite of all that, it says, But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. The poor they cared not for, or those that were afflicted or in need of any problem, uh, any uh, help. They were not grieved. You know, you and I as Christians ought to be grieved every time a brother or sister or fellow church member or fellow Christian anywhere has a real terrible affliction or problem or need. And it ought to come close to our hearts and we ought to pray for that individual. If it's sickness or if it's financial problems, if it's uh, domestic problems, if they've gotten off on the wrong foot and doing the wrong thing even. And you know, Paul said in the book of Galatians, I believe it's chapter 6 verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, he says, Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Then he goes on to say, Considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Realizing that we're not above being afflicted ourselves. So, brethren, if a man be overtaken in the fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, or consider thyself, that lest thou also be tempted. I believe I have the right reference. You can look it up and see. So, anyway, we find that 
They drank wine in bowls, verse 6, and anoint themselves with chief ointments. They can't get enough of just luxurious living. You know, personally, I'm glad and thankful to have the necessities of life. I don't have to have everything in the world. I don't have to have gold and silver chandeliers and all the fancies of this life. I'm glad I have a roof over my head and a little warmth in the house, a furnace, a heater to keep the house comfortable and to have food on the table and the necessities of life. Clothes upon my back. And you know, I feel kind of like Paul in that sense. I've learned that whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. And we all need to learn to be content. There's always someone grasping for more and more and more. And when will you reach that goal to where you have enough? You heard me tell the story of an evangelist preaching over in, in uh, Scotland or Ireland in the uh, British Isles. And he had invited people to come on this basis. He said, I want you to come. And if you can tell me, anyone can come and tell me that they're satisfied with what they have, uh, and do not have to have Jesus to be satisfied, well, uh, I'll give them a thousand pound note. And so here one guy, an atheist type of guy, and wealthy, he came in and sat in the back of the church, and the preacher started this message, and he interrupted him, and he says, I heard that you was going to give that a thousand pound note to anyone that was satisfied without Jesus. And he says, I'm satisfied without Jesus. He started walking down the aisle to get his thousand pound note. He says, I I want that thousand pound note. He says, you're not satisfied. He said, if you did, if you were, you wouldn't want this. If you had enough, you wouldn't want this thousand pound note. And that's the truth. People just want more and more and more, don't they? And it seems like you never get the last dollar that you want. And some people have uh, set it their goal to be rich. And the Bible says, They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, uh, which drown men's souls in, in perdition. And you know, to go day by day and thank God for what you have and take care of what He's given you and realize that your blessings come from God, you can't do better than that, friend. That's the best you can do. And that's all you need to do. But these people that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Let us not be selfish people. Let's learn to to care about the people around about us, and especially, uh, the Bible says that we ought to be especially good to those of the household of God, Paul tells Timothy, the church of God, the household of God. Now then, verse 7, Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive. He says, these kind of people will be the first ones that will go into captivity. And you can study the record, and they were. And the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. Then it says in verse 8, The Lord God has sworn by Himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that, it, that is therein. And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house that they shall die. There will be plagues. There will be judgment. God will bring judgment. And God says, I've sworn by myself that this is going to happen. In verse 8. And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say to him that is by the sides of the house, Is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, No. Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not 
make mention of the name of the Lord. They were afraid that judgment would come upon them. There's been some that have taken this word, uh, and he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house as a way of making preparation for burial. And since cremation was not acceptable in ancient Israel, the reference is probably to the burning of, uh, uh, of a corpse that, was, uh, that died or was killed by a plague. And so, you know, there are certain things that you have to do when there's a plague that comes. And that's what it more or less had reference to, rather than a way of burying people, burning them, cremating them, and then burying them. A lot of people that believe in cremation have taken this verse for that reason. Now, you can be buried any way you want to. I'm not going to argue with you, but personally, I want my body to rest in the grave like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob be put in the, under the ground. And like it's been the ancient custom of burying people for thousands of years. And uh, then when the Lord comes, He'll resurrect it. And I'll be a new creature and have a life that's uh, incorruptible and undefiled and fadeth not away. And anyway, there's a lot of... Uh, People that uh, do different things, and that's your business, not mine. But there's the one that always quoted to me a scripture that's not a scripture, and said that the Bible says, justifying cremation, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. In the first place, it doesn't say that. It says a lot about dust, and it says a lot about ashes, but it's never in that context, if you'll study it out. And nowadays with computers, you can look up any words in combination of words you want to, and you'll find that uh, there's a mention of man going back to the dust. There's a mention of uh, Job's repentance. And he says, uh, speaking to God uh, about God being merciful to him and how he repented and how God looked down upon him. And he says, who am, speaking of himself, but dust and ashes. He's realizing the frailty and the and the. Uh, uselessness of his body and his frame. And he speaks of himself in the, that fashion. And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, Is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, No. Then he shall say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. They were afraid that uh, God would smite them. Verse 11, For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house and the breaches and the little house with, the cl- with clefts. So they were afraid of the judgment falling upon themselves. Now verse 12. Shall horses run upon the rock? You don't have horses running upon the rock usually, do you? I've had horses run upon the mountains. and If you come across the rocks, you don't want to try to run a horse across rocks. Will one plow? There with oxen, you're going to take your oxen out and try to plow a rocky mountain without removing some of the stones at least. It says, will one plow there with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. He's telling them how absurd was their actions. Shall horses run upon a rock? The rock. Will one plow there with oxen? Both these are questions. Verse 13. It says, ye which rejoice in a thing... Of naught, which say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? You know, horns speak of power. In other words, have we not trusted in our own power? But behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of the wilderness. And it tells what affliction that they will endure and have to endure because of God's judgment upon them. The way of the Lord's punishment would come upon them in this 14th verse. And he tells how he would do it. I will raise up against you 
a nation, O house of Israel. God used wicked nations, heathen nations, to bring a chastening rod upon His people from time to time. Isn't it a terrible thing when we get in such a state of affairs that God has to use someone on the outside to bring chastening to us? Remember, that's what He did to Abraham. When Abraham told a lie about Sarah, you know, and didn't say, well, this is my wife, my dear wife, showing their true relationship. This is my sister. She was, in a sense, a half-sister. But on the other hand, it, uh, Sarah was Abram's wife, wasn't it? Wasn't it? And that's where that half-truth business comes in. That's where that implication of what is not true comes in. They call them white lies, I guess, you know. Sometimes people do that. Say, I just told a white lie. Well, white or black, it's a lie, isn't it? And the thing about it is, it brought a rebuke because uh, he and his men would have taken her to wife because she was a beautiful woman. And by Abraham saying she's my sister, he put her in the place of jeopardy and also his marriage vows and relationship in the place of jeopardy. And finally, when he was dismissed, he says, take now your wife, take her and depart. And he had to receive a rebuke from the world. We call it a rebuke from the world. It's a sad thing when we go out here in the world and the world has to point to us and say something about us that is true. And we're a Christian and it's true that we've failed in that, that particular thing. If you look over in the book of First Peter, let's see if it's there. First Peter. Maybe Second Peter. Second Peter. No, it's First Peter chapter 4. I want you to notice this. Second Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now look, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Look, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, and on their part He is evil spoken of, but on your part He is glorified. Now verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So to, to suffer as a Christian is one thing, but to suffer in other ways we know is not uh, acceptable. And let me see if I can find one in Second Peter. I believe there's another one. Well... That should do to show you the point. But if we suffer for the sake of Christ, it's all right. But we're not to suffer for other reasons. Yeah, it's in, uh, drop back to the second chapter. <clears throat> second chapter now, verse 19 and 20. Of, you have second, uh, First Peter chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. It says, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure Grief, suffering wrongfully. Now look at verse 20. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? You don't have any glory if you're buffeted for your faults. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So what glory is it when you're corrected, buffeted, or whatever happens to you for your faults? There's no glory in that. We had it coming, we say. But if you do otherwise and take it patiently, will lend us to the glory of God. Back in the book of Amos, chapter 6, and we read the last verse. But I want you to get a brief as we look into the seventh chapter of what we're going to find here. We have about ten minutes to at least give you an introduction here. In chapter 7, 
through chapter 9, verse 10, and I want you to just turn and mark some of these places so we'll be prepared to study them as we continue in the book of uh, Amos. Now, there are five visions of witness, and I want to give you a division of this. Five visions of witness. And the first one you find is in verses 1 through 3, but let's look at verse 1. Just mark a 1 by, by verse 1 where it says, He formed grasshoppers. Notice grasshoppers, or you might say that locusts that come to devour. Devouring locusts. You might write beside verse 1, devouring locusts. And then drop down to verse 4. The Lord God called, behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire. The second one is fire. You have a consuming fire. These are visions of witness against Israel. And then drop down to verse 7. You'll find a plumb line. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. That's number three, the plumb line. So verse 1, you had devouring locusts, devouring locusts. Verse 4, a consuming fire. Verse 7, a plumb line. We know what a plumb line is. And then uh, then from verses, verses 10 through 17, you have uh, what we call a historical interlude. So don't, don't make one of these numbers there. Just up by verse 10, just write interlude. It's a... Situation between Amaziah and Amos. And uh, you'll find a historical interlude there. And then in chapter 8, let's come to the fourth one of these visions of witness. Chapter 8, verse 1, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. That's number 4. Basket of summer fruit. And then chapter 9, verse 1, and mark this number 5. This is the fifth one of these visions of witnesses. Witness. 9 verse 1, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. So the Lord Himself beside the altar is what you find. So you have five things here. 7 verse 1, 7 verse 1, the devouring locusts. 7 verse 4, the consuming fire. 7 verse 7, the plumb line. And then from 10 on down, the interlude, historical interlude, from verse 10 through 17 on that 7th chapter. And then chapter 8, verse 1, you have a basket of summer fruit. That includes all of chapter 8. And then chapter 9, verse 1, you have the Lord Himself, Jehovah Himself, beside the altar. And each one of these give us something that uh, we'll study in our lesson that's to come. In fact, while you're in the process of marking down some of these things, we're going to find that 7 verses 1 through 3, that judgment is threatened and then it's restrained. Judgment threatened and restrained. You could put that by verses 1 through 3. Judgment threatened and restrained. And then by verse 4, put judgment settled or it's determined. Determined by verse 4. No, I, I beg your pardon. I got that wrong. Let me go back. That judgment threatened and restrained includes... The first two, the devouring locust and the consuming fire. Because in both instances, it was threatened and restrained. And the one I just said, the judgment is settled. That's determined by this plumb line. That's down in verse 7. It's, it's determined. You know, when, when you put a plumb line on the side of the wall to see where how straight it is, I mean, that determines whether the wall is straight or not. And so it was determined by the plumb line, and God put the plumb line there to show whether they were true or not. And down in verse 8, he says, I will not again pass by them anymore, because it was determined. And then when you come to chapter 8, verse uh, 
one again, a basket of summer fruit. You know what that represents. What happens to summer fruit if uh, you don't eat it up right away or use it in some manner? It rots, doesn't it? Spoils. It ruins. And so we'll put beside that, judgment is imminent. It's very, in other words, it's imminent. It's going to happen if you don't, if something's not done immediately. And then chapter 9, verse 1, you have the Lord's judgment is executed because God Himself is standing beside the altar and He executes the judgment that He's determined to do. And as you look at chapter 7, verse 1, let's begin there and see what we find that we've already uh, begin to talk about the plague uh, of locusts and how the plague is perverted and how the judgment is uh, re- threatened but is restrained. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of the 7th chapter. And these are five visions of witness. Chapter 7, verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And it came to pass when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land. See, these were devouring locusts. Then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this, it shall not be, saith the Lord. In other words, he threatened with this kind of destruction that they would destroy the land And then it says, The Lord repented for this, it shall not be, saith the Lord. This is the vision of witness that God had against them. So this was the threat of judgment, that uh, these devouring locusts would destroy all the land. And and here's the fact that it was restrained. Look at verse uh, 3. The Lord repented for this, it shall not be, saith the Lord. So we said it's judgment, threatened, and restrained. Now the same thing happened about the fire. Look at verse 4. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire. And it devoured the great deep. This is a vision of Amos about destruction. And did eat up the part, eat up a part. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee. Amos is interceding in the, in a mediatorial way, an intercessory way. By whom shall Jacob rise for he is small? And it says the Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord. So he restrained that judgment of fire. He restrained the judgment of the locust. He restrained the judgment by the fire. But then he sends the pump plumb line. Verse 7. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon the wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now this tells where it's going to go, and what's going to happen. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And and I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will not again pass by them any more. So we said that judgment was settled. It was determined. I will not again pass by them any more. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. So this was determined. So the first two, judgment was threatened by the locust plague that would devour the land. And then God said He repented of that because Amos said, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? And so God, it says the Lord repented for this, verse 3. And the same thing about the fire. In verse 6 it says, the Lord repented of this. This also shall not be. But then when you come to verse 7 and the plumb line is set, and He says, I'm going to, I'm going to check Israel out and see where they stand. In verse 8, look at it again. And the Lord saith, said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, 
He didn't say he would repent of it. Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I'm going to find if they're true or not. I'm going to test them by a true line. And I'm going to find out whether or not I should continue with this judgment and this vision. And he says, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And he tells what he's going to do to them. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. We'll conclude there because in the last part of chapter 7, we have this interlude that we want to deal with. And then chapter 8, we have these other two visions. Chapter 8, we have another vision of witness, the basket of summer fruit. And then in chapter 9, we have the Lord himself standing upon the altar and bringing the Lord's judgment and how it's executed. And so we'll take up those thoughts in our next lesson. Thank you for your patience, your kind attention.